0: of all the cities of ancient Greece that would have had a twisted view of love, it would have been Corinth. In fact, of all the churches probably in uh, the New Testament era that would be in need of teaching on the subject of true love, it would be these former adulterers and thieves and homosexuals and fornicators and swindlers who had come to faith and joined the church in Corinth. They had lived for their own lusts and their own pleasures. They had extorted. They had stolen from uh, their neighbors and employers and perhaps each other, if you can imagine that. Now they're in the assembly where they're learning that giving is better than receiving and serving is is better than ruling. This would be a life-changing perspective. They already knew how to use people to their advantage, but they had to learn how to serve people. They already knew how to have sexual relations with other people. They had to learn purity outside of marriage and fidelity inside of marriage. They naturally followed the motivations of of, uh, greed and self-advancement. They could use people. They could manipulate relationships to get what they wanted, but they knew nothing of this, this unique motivation of agape love. This isn't, of course, just a problem in Corinth, is it? It's necessary for every church and every culture in every generation to learn how to love. We're all infected with too much of ourselves. We're all infected with a terminal case of self-love self-promoting, self-advancing, self-appreciating, self-enamored, self-increasing, self-enhancing love. Just watch a toddler in the nursery. Who taught him to pitch a fit when his toys were taken away? He's gotten old enough at that point to evidence the characteristic trait of human nature, which is the opposite of agape. It is self-centeredness. I went to the grocery store on one of those quick trips to grab some fruit, and some vitamin-enhanced bottled water, a couple of bags of non-fattening chips, and a dozen donuts. <laughs> because I believe in balance. I noticed a mother somewhat haggled and worn out by her, looked like about two- or three-year-old, who happened to be standing up in the back of the buggy, literally screaming at the top of her lungs. This little red-haired girl was, was having… Um, a meltdown. There's no question about it. Her cute little face was as red as her hair. She was standing on her tiptoes with, with her little tennis shoes on, white-knuckled, holding on to the edge of the grocery cart. She was mad. If, if she had been bigger, we'd, been all, we'd all been dead, I'm convinced. There would have been no survivors leaving Harris Teeter. This bedraggled mother, I watched her for just a moment, I knew I'd get a sermon illustration out of it somehow, but she just kindly kept saying, honey, you can't have that. You can't have that. You can't have that. How about toddlers who come to church? There's the solution. Get them in church, and they'll act spiritual. Do do you think for a moment that that across the courtyard and down the hallway that that there are two-year-olds right now involved in rampant sharing with one another. I've got more than enough Cheerios here. You can have some of mine. No, I don't think so. Early on, we crave to get, don't we? And then we learn how to keep and how to clutch. We have to learn how to give. We have to learn how to be selfless in in serving. In fact, we all want to be loved, With agape love. But we must learn how to be lovers with agape love. It's interesting, though. Once you see the genuine item, you can spot it, can't you? Someone sent me several things children said regarding true love, and I thought they were great. Would you like to hear some of them? Rebecca, age eight, said, when my grandmother got arthritis… She couldn't bend down to paint her toenails anymore, so my grandfather does it for her. That's love, I'll say. <laughs> Danny, age seven, said, When my mommy makes coffee for my daddy, she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure the taste is okay. That's love. Chris, age seven, said, Love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he's handsome. Elaine, age five, says, Love is when mommy gives daddy the best piece of chicken. I like the direction these are going, don't you? These are. <laughs> Carl doesn't get it. This little kid said, Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on cologne and they go out and smell each other. <laughs> <laughs> Lauren says, I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and she has to go out and buy new ones. (laughs) Cute. She'll catch on later (laughs) make her sister pay. One more. Jessica, age eight, delivered this profound statement. You really shouldn't say, I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot because people forget. The world has frankly been trying to get it right for thousands of years. To the Greeks, when we're introduced to this chapter, in Paul's day they focused on storge, as we learned in our last session, family love, natural love that comes from being a part of the family. They emphasized the word philia, the love of mutual attraction. In our last session we called it harmony love, and I didn't get any emails, and I appreciated that. I was a little disappointed, though. The downside of Philia says, I, I will love you if everything I love, you love. Another word that was heavily used was eros. This was erotic, stimulating, thunder and lightning kind of feelings that temporarily intoxicate the senses. It ought to head toward a commitment of soul and body and mind, but the world never moves past that. They can't. Since agape is at its core divinely inspired. It is not in our flesh. It is not of us. It is impossible to love with agape love apart from a commitment to Christ. So we summarized, and this is where we left off, that Storge says, I love you because you're in my family, but agape says, I will love you and treat you like you're in my family. Philia means I love you because you are like me. Agape says, I will love you even though you are unlike me. And Eros says, I love you because you meet my needs and make my heart beat. Agape says, I love you and commit my heart to meeting your needs. Now you need to know that by the time Paul sent this letter to these Corinthian believers, that they had become enamored with the public, miraculous front page sensational news type of demonstrations. And they were actually embroiled over dissension related to these disagreements and these disputes coming out of the clamoring for the public, sensational, temporary gifts. They were actually imitating their self-centered culture around them. What's even more dangerous is that they're in the process of moving Corinth into the church, they're moving it right inside. They're bringing into the assembly their old ways of life where they were first and everybody else came last where they mattered and no one else came close. So Paul is actually, with First with Corinthians 13, which is often sort of divested of its context, is actually putting on the brakes on his discussion on spiritual gifts And he closes chapter 12 by by giving us a hint at what's coming. He says, I am going to show you a more excellent way to live. This is what you ought to pursue. This is excellence. This matters. This is the foundation of selfless, servant-like, people-first, God's glory-most kind of living and loving and it's this thing called agape love that makes up its mind to live and serve others in a loving way and you can't help but but notice that as 1 Corinthians 13 opens Paul begins by using himself as the example did you notice if i speak just imagine if i the apostle of christ if i speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have agape, I have become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. What Paul will do in this paragraph is say, listen, if if I, one of Christ's apostles, that you would assume would have it together, would receive revelation from God, but if I don't have agape, I accomplish nothing. Look at verse 2. If I have the gift of prophecy, if I know all mysteries, and I have all knowledge, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am am nothing. Paul is going to teach us something radical. We could call it divine mathematics. He will present uh, present the, the, the hypothetical possibility of adding seven eminent qualities of spiritual life and dynamic ministry, but without love, those qualities add up to nothing. Seven wonderful attributes all added up without love equals a big zero. Here's the divine mathematical formula. Seven minus one equals zero. Let's look at the list closer together. The first dynamic element is eloquence. Again, verse 1, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels. Now, Paul is no doubt referencing the gift of tongues. The Corinthians' enthusiasm over this supernatural, public, uh, upfront, sensational, spotlight gift was was sort of leading them into prideful disorder. And so, he'll come back in chapter 14 with rules on how to accomplish what God intended this to accomplish as it was a sign gift to Israel before, I believe, the close of the canon. One author referred to this culture right here as charismatic chaos. Paul immediately captures their attention by saying, listen, imagine if I were the world's most gifted tongue speaker. Imagine if I were the greatest tongue speaker. I could speak in all of the languages or tongues of the world. In fact, the word here from "glossa," translated tongue, uh, gives us our word glossary. It could be better understood what Paul is saying here if we translated it languages. Paul is saying, what if I was fluent in every language of mankind, but without love? I would only be impressing myself. Paul has them imagine even further, look there next, if I could speak with the languages of, of the angels. Now, the Bible doesn't teach any kind of unique or special angelic language or dialect. People often misunderstand the, the groanings of the Holy Spirit to be some sort of, of a language his utterances. No, he can speak perfectly with the triune, within the triune Godhead. In fact, throughout the record of Scripture, whenever angels speak to men or to women, what's remarkable is that they address them in whatever language they understand. So, they communicate to people when they do appear to, to speak to them in whatever language the hearer understands. Paul is basically saying here. If I were given the supernatural ability of the angels to address mankind in whatever their language, I mean, it doesn't matter where. I would be the hero missionary, you know. I I could show up in any country to any people group with any tongue, any glossa, any any language, and and I could could fluently communicate the truth to them. But notice, without love, he says… I would be nothing more than a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. This was uh, this sounding brass. Uh, you could translate it was that gong that was struck, the tinkling cymbal that your translation may read doesn't quite translate the noise of, of this crashing, clanging cymbal. Paul is referring to the percussion section of ancient music. These two instruments gave off noise more than music. Uh, they had their place, and, and when well used, could have dynamic effect, but there, there's no such thing as a, a cymbal solo. There are no symphonies for cymbals. Bach, you know, never did that, or Beethoven, but they can be effective if they are timed and, and, and timely. Paul is saying, look, if I could speak in any language, if I could communicate the truth in, in some effective way, and yet I lack love for the people I was speaking to, I'm just a noisy symbol. I'm a clanging gong. Why don't I just illustrate that? I mean, David, where are you, David? I wish I could sing like David. Don't you wish you could sing like David, you know, I, I he can sing. Come over here. There's a microphone right there for you if you need it. And and I, I just you know, I've been thinking about this all week and I I'd like to accompany you. I amazing grace. I mean you, you sing, I mean you sing so beautifully, just all right, you just amazing grace perhaps, all right? I no, no, no 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 I I I've got to do an introduction. I've no, got no, 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 peace. I'm not done yet. Oh. I, this is my chance to do an introduction to your singing. Just one more time. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. i got peace like a river. Oh, it's river wonderful. Dan. Thank you very much. So, I got peace Wonderful. Like wow, that was, that was beautiful, wasn't it? In my you soul. <laughs> you know, that was amazing. I, I got a lot out of that. Um, <laughs> Luke, Luke Akins, one of our pastors, where are you? I, I think somebody said you're here. Come up. You preach. You love the Word. Come on. Come on. Come up here. Hey. Bring your Bible. Just pick a verse. Come on. Get up here. Step on that chair. Get up on this pulpit. College pastor, I mean, just start. You just go ahead and you preach away. And I, All I, right. I, yes, sir. Let's Thank you. Let's turn babe. to the book of Colossians. We've been looking at Colossians. Come on. Lord. I want you to guys see the, uh, the after picture Amen. that Colossians Amen. Is. Amen. talks to us in Colossians 1, verse 21. So go ahead and turn there please really quick go ahead and turn the clock <laughs> give him a hand thank you <laughs> i know those college students would never do that to you luke now i think we know paul says you preach you sing you tell the truth you do it in any language on the planet and you will and you're amazing, and you're gifted, and you're talented. But without love as the leading instrument, you're only making noise, just a lot of noise. Paul is actually hinting at something more than just symbols. In the first-century worship of Dionysus, the clanging of symbols and the striking of a a gong, accompanied the ecstatic utterance as they spoke with unintelligible language, as they reached fever pitch in their false worship. That was going on in the first century. I believe Paul is hinting that the church in Corinth is looking and sounding more like a pagan religion than the holy redeemed people of Christ. Without love, we are no different than the pagans. It's what he's after. Let me principalize it this way. Without love, communication becomes noisy confusion and contradiction. A noisy symbol will never attract anybody to Christ. A noisy saint who serves without love, who speaks without love, will never edify anyone in the church. Now, Paul anticipates. I think his audience saying, you're right, Paul. Uh, Anything that that we come up with saying needs to be said with the right spirit for it to be meaningful and fruitful and to have an impact. But but what if God gives you the message? What if God gives you some kind of revelation? Then it really won't matter if you love people or not, right, because this is just the message of God, and you're just delivering the message as His messenger, so love won't matter, Paul says. I I anticipated you thinking that. So, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy… And I know all mysteries and all knowledge. Now, stop. Prophecy is the ability to publicly proclaim God's truth. Accurately, um, authoritatively, I agree with one author who pointed out the twofold aspect of prophecy. One is past tense, one is present tense. Past tense is revelation. Present tense is reiteration. In other words, it can be, it can be received from God's uh, this new revelation, a prophet in the Old uh, Testament and on into the New Testament until the canon of Scripture was closed and that which God was speaking was finished. And He would say at the end of of the book you're holding, don't add a line to it, don't take away a line from it. But for now, nearly 2,000 years, we have had not revelation, we have had reiteration the communication of the truth of God's Word, the repeating of what God has already said. So Paul is saying here, listen, if I have the ability to both tell the future or receive some new truth from God, or if I have the ability to preach and teach what God has already revealed, yet I don't love my students, notice at the end of verse 2, he says, I am a zero. Which is an interesting thought. You've been teaching for fifteen years maybe, that class of fifth graders. If you don't love them, your ministry amounts to nothing in the eyes of God. Paul goes on to add to prophecy all mysteries. This is the understanding of God's ways yet unexplained. The mystery was some redemptive truth once hidden that's now revealed through Scripture. Paul adds to all mysteries all knowledge. In other words, you're a walking Bible encyclopedia. You've got all the facts. You have all of the theological answers to any spiritual question, any spiritual mystery. You know it all. Yet if you lack love, Paul says, you will be nothing. Robert Gramacchi said it this way, a full head with an empty heart adds up to nothing. It's possible then to know a lot about the facts of the Bible and very little about the heart of God. One of the authors I was reading, and I can't remember which one this week, sometimes they run together, but he made the comment that the enemy of the church, Satan, he can imitate the gifts of Christ. He can imitate the works of God. He can imitate the miracles of God. But he cannot imitate the heart of God." Earlier, Paul emphasized this point, without love, communication becomes noisy, confusion. Here Paul is saying in principle form, sharing insight with others without showing interest in others is ineffective. That's why the Lord Jesus made it very clear that the disciples were not to be known by their knowledge. Jesus never said, They will know you are my disciples by your IQ. They will know you are my disciples by your SATs. Praise God for that, right? They will know you are my disciples by your amazing insight. They will know you are my disciples because you know the future. You ever thought about that? We know the future. The world is dying to know what happens after you die, and we know. We know the future. We can describe heaven for people right down to the pavement. We know it. But have you ever had anybody say, Wow, you know what my future state is going to be after I die? Then, in that case, what must I do to be saved? I want to come to your church. You know the future. What makes them wonder? What makes them thirsty? is when they see you acting in a loving way toward your boss at work who just trampled all over you or that employee perhaps in the next cubicle who stabbed you in the back to get a promotion and that you still care about what kind of job you're doing and you still care about them. What gets their attention is that you care about that student in the classroom that nobody else cares about and you speak to them. That's distinctive. That's why the mark of the disciple is what? They will know you are my disciples by your, by your agape, your love, John thirteen thirty five. So, Paul, I think at this point, seems to anticipate people searching for perhaps another loophole because he knows how we are, right? So, okay, what if we don't try to be eloquent? Uh, in, in fact, we, we won't say anything at all we're not going to try to demonstrate the public speaking gifts. We're not going to walk around like some Bible encyclopedia. All we're going to do is act with great faith in God who has the power to make great things happen, Paul says. In fact, I imagine then uh, further in this text, if I had all faith so as to move mountains, I am nothing. Here's the third point he's making. Without love, a reputation of faith becomes a farce. He is suggesting that all faith is not as important as some love. And would you notice, Paul does not say, without love, my great faith and the acts of faith become nothing. No. He says, even if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So here's how to be nothing. Demonstrate the gifts without demonstrating grace. Divine mathematics adds it all up and says, well, that equals nothing. Okay, i got one more chance or two. I'll just back up my loveless heart with acts of love. I don't love people, but I'll just act as if I do. Well, God will take note of that, won't He? No. Paul seems to anticipate that. Notice verse 3. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor. Now Paul, stop for a moment, uses language that's very descriptive. The verb so midzo means to literally feed by placing morsels in the mouth. You are literally ladling out the soup. He leaves no question. You are personally, intimately involved. You are spooning it out until you have no more soup and no more money to buy any more soup, and you give it all away. Paul says, without love, all that was worthless to me. It will not be rewarded. It will not be honored by the Father. It's zero. That's true, isn't it? Because God is is not so impressed with what we do as much as He is with who we are. We focus on the works of our hands and he focuses on the condition of our heart. To give without love profits you nothing. Well, I had the question in my mind, why would anybody give without love? I have one commentator who wrote about 200 years ago who just gave me a list that embarrassed me forever asking the question. Here are several of them. You give to make your conscience quiet. You give to put the unpleasant need out of sight. You give to look like you care. You give out of a sense of obligation. You give what you really don't want to have. You give to look like others around you that gain respect and attention by giving. That was just for starters. It's possible to give without love. The rabbis of Paul's day required that a faithful Jew gave 20% of of what they had. Paul is literally upping the ante. In fact, he's talking about unheard of generosity. He says, even if you gave everything you owned away, 100%, without love, it is worthless to your own account. That's divine mathematics. Seven minus 1 equals 0 now we've looked at 6 of them that all add up to 0 without love Paul is covering all of the possibilities of life without love he's addressed what you say and how well you say it he's talked about what you believe and how much you know it he's talked about what you give and how much you give it and now he moves to the ultimate demonstration surely this would get the attention and approval of God I mean, this is the caveat this is how you die This will get his attention. This will reap many rewards at the Bema. He goes on, And if I give my body to be burned and do not have love, it profits me what? Nothing. If I give my body to be burned. Now, it's possible that Paul is referring to the ancient custom of branding slaves. Perhaps Paul is referring to To someone going into slavery so that someone else could be freed, and they're willing to give their flesh, their back, their thigh, or their arm to literally be burned with that brand. That would be a wonderful sacrifice to give your life into slavery so that one who is enslaved can go free, wouldn't it? I personally believe, though, given the ascending significance of these elements of sacrifice that Paul is actually thinking of someone dying a martyr's death. Even though Christians at this time in Paul's life were not being burned at the stake as they will one day be, but criminals and enemies of the state were burned to death. But Paul is a Roman citizen, and, and a Roman citizen, one of the guaranteed rights of citizenship is that you will never be executed by burning. No Roman citizen, no matter how vile, corrupt, or criminal, ever had to worry, no Roman would ever be executed by burning. So Paul, in effect, is saying, what if I, a Roman citizen, was willing for someone else to lay aside my rights as a Roman citizen and die this horrific death of burning? Even that would profit me nothing without agape. In other words, Paul's point is without love giving the ultimate gift gains nothing. Seven characteristics minus love equals nothing. Seven minus one equals zero. So how do you avoid Becoming the sum of these divine mathematics. Well, six ways. One, whatever you say, ask, does it sound loving? Two, whatever you do, ask, is it done with love? Three, whatever you think, ask, is it balanced with love? Four, whenever you respond, ask, is it covered in love? Five, whenever you serve, ask, is it motivated by love? Six, whatever you give, ask, is it generated by love? Now, maybe you're thinking, stop, slow down, I'm I'm, I'm at point two. No, I did that on purpose. You don't need to write anything down. All I want you to think of this is this. It is whatever you are doing plus love that matters. It is whatever you are saying plus love that makes a difference. For whatever you are doing or saying or giving or being or sacrificing or whatever without love, it's nothing. With love, no matter what you can give, no matter how you serve, no matter what your sacrifice, no matter where you serve, no no matter, it it is worth to God everything. Author and speaker Jerry Bridges gave a, a, a great illustration of this divine mathematics. He said, write down either in your imagination or on a sheet of paper a row of zeros and then another line of zeros and then another line and another line and another line until you've filled up the front of the page. Turn it over and just keep writing zeros until you get to the very last one. Now add them up. Now for someone like me that just never did well at math, I've got that one down. It would be zero. Zero. Well, let's add a thousand more zeros. Let's get pages and pages and pages. And you just write zero, 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 zero. Come to the end. Add it up. What would it be? Zero. Then he said, what you do is you go back to the beginning of your list, the very first page, the very first column, the very first zero. And in front of that zero, add one little positive positive." number, like a two or a five, and immediately all those zeros have value, immense value. Paul is saying, list all your gifts, list all your talents, list everything you can do, everything you can give, everything you can say, every way you can serve, list them all. They add up to zero. Unless at the front there is this one element, agape, love. These are convicting words. Don't forget, he's writing this to a church. He's writing this to them, and He's writing this to us. Well, Paul, how can I tell if what I say and what I do and how I serve and what I give has love added to it? And I can almost hear Paul saying, I'm glad you asked. That's next. In our next session, we'll take a look at what Paul shows us as he shows us what true love really looks like And how life with love added to it acts. He will, in effect, say, Let me show you how to live so that your life never equals zero. Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing the Apostle Paul with humility to use himself as an example to have us imagine what he would be like. Surely he is immensely valuable. To the church. Surely, everything that he wrote and said, his sacrifices, his life's work would have gotten your attention. Thank you that you let him be the example that all of that meant nothing to you without love. So would you enable us by your Spirit to make sure no matter what we do to ask the question, is love in front of it, underneath it, above it, behind it, in it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.